Psalm 66 in your Bibles, please. Psalm 66. If you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided, you will find today's text on starting on page 306. Page 306 and continuing on to the next page. I would encourage you to open your Bible or, or open one of the Bibles that are there. Um, here at North Hills, we use a philosophy called expository preaching, which many of you are familiar with that terminology. It just simply means that we're taking a text of Scripture and we're exploring it together. I was thinking as I was preparing uh, this message this week that uh, the analogy of a tour guide is apt. Uh, a few, a few uh, couple months ago, we went to Longhorn Caverns. And as we went through Longhorn Caverns, there was a tour guide there who was pointing out various sites along the way. Do you notice this? Do you see this? Now, let me explain how this formation, right? The, the tour guide wasn't anything special. He was just some guy that knew a little bit more than us about the cave. And what he was doing as we went through the cave was he was pointing out the, the magnificence of what we saw around us, all right? That's the preacher's job, okay? The preacher's job is to understand that text of Scripture so that as we take a tour through that text of Scripture, he's pointing out the, the sites that are worth seeing. And I'm not going to point out all the sites, but we're going to try to have a thorough understanding of the text. That's what we endeavor to do uh, here at North Hills um, Expository Preaching. So Psalm 66, we've been meditating on it now for a whole month. Uh, we've read it several, t- several times in our worship service. Uh, we have sung Psalm 66, and so now it's time for us to just take some time to consider uh, this text of Scripture in more depth. Why don't we just pause for a moment? We've already read the text together as our call to worship. Why don't we just pause, ask for God's help and strength as we look at this passage. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it gives to us all the things that we need for life and godliness. And I pray that even this morning, as we uh, endeavor to understand this by the strength of your spirit, that our hearts would be open and that, Father, you would change us, convict us, show us how we, through your help and your grace, can become more like Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. A few months back, I saw a story on the news. It was about a police officer who was retiring. After a several decades long career, he was retiring, and those that were preparing his retirement ceremony had prepared a very special surprise for him. You see, early on in the first few years of that police officer's career, he had saved the life of a little two-year-old. And I don't remember all the details. I, I, I think, seem to think it was a drowning or something like that, but, but, but he, he intervened and he saved the life of this, this little boy who... who recovered from his, his injuries and went on to live a very full life. And by the time that the, the, the officer was retiring, this what was a little boy at the time that he had saved and was now a young man. And this young man came and was part of the ceremony and surprised this police officer. And uh, obviously, you know, people were, were crying and hugging and all these, these wonderful things to celebrate the work that this man had done all of these years before. Can you imagine what it must be like to grow up knowing that, that you barely escaped death, that, that you, your life had been saved by someone's courageous intervening, thank you, at just the right time? 
Can you imagine being this young man, making your way through elementary school and then high school and then going off to college and thinking in the back of your mind, none of this would be possible had it not been for the, for the good work of this, of this first responder, this, this hero, and always being thankful in your heart. And can you imagine what it must be like to go back, to, to see that man face to face, to thank him for the things that he had done? Now, here in this psalm, we see the psalmist praising God, extolling Him for His good work. And on a much, much higher level, and a much greater plane, the psalmist is saying, you are responsible, God, for everything I am. And, and in fact, to exhibit that, these are your works. These are the things that you have done. This is a marvelous psalm that reminds us to praise God for what He has done. Praise God for what He has done. That's really the entire theme of this message, of this, of this uh, psalm. We don't really know a lot about the historical context of Psalm 66. Uh, many Bible students believe that this um, followed after an incident that happened in Isaiah 36 and 37, and that King Hezekiah, who cried out to God, asking him for victory over Sennacherib, and God answered his prayer. And so many Bible students believe that this psalm is actually a celebration of what God did. We don't know that for sure, but it seems commensurate with the incident that we see happening in Isaiah 36 and 37. You can take time to to read that later if you'd like. So as we observe this psalm, we see that we are to praise God for what He has done. God is great. That is is who He is. He is great. He is good. He is wonderful. And because of that, all people should praise Him. That's what we see in verses 1 through 4. So verses 1 through 4 start off, Make a joyful shout. Now this word here that is used for shout is a word that was often used when you would cry out to a king to, to make a, 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 a homage to a king, right? You see, you see in books or in movies where someone, uh, the king will do something great, and what will the crowd say? They'll say what? Long live the king, right? This is actually the, the idea that is embedded here. This is this extolling, giving honor to the king, that is used here. So we are to give this to God. We are to give Him the, the recognition of who He is as King and, and who is to do this, we see in the next phrase, all the earth. All the people of the earth are to acknowledge Him as King. It's not enough to simply say, well, we recognize Him as King, but the call is for all peoples of the earth. You ever have a conversation with someone and they say, you know, you're, you're trying to, to make your way to the gospel. You're trying to explain to them the truths of Scripture, who Jesus Christ is. And, and, and they kind of, kind of stop you as if, as if this is supposed to be the, the thing that, that stops the conversation. Well, I believe in God. Well, that's good. But the psalmist doesn't in any way note that just simply believing in God is sufficient. In fact, just simply believing in God is, is insufficient. The question is, do you acknowledge Him for who He is? Do you recognize Him as ruler? Are you submitting to Him as the King that He is? That's the idea of verse 1. It says, make a, a joyful shout to the Lord. It is not 
They're not simply saying, you know, just go around shouting. Well, you can do that if you want, I and mean, that may be a good thing to do. But what it's really saying is acknowledge who he is. Pay homage to him as king, all the earth. And so that, verse 1, really sets the tone. It is really that reminder that we are to praise God for, for who he is in his grandeur, in his majesty, in his sovereignty over the earth. Now, how is that expressed? Well, verse 2 tells us how it is expressed. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious, or put a different way, give to him glorious praise. In fact, I think that's how the psalm that we've been singing words it. To give him glorious praise is what is owed to him because of who he is and what he has done. Verse 3 goes further. Say to God, how awesome are your works. So we acknowledge who God is, just as, just as this, this young man gives thanks to this police officer for what he has done because that demonstrates who he is in his essence, we are to, on a much, much more profound level, acknowledge who God is, and, and we note that when we notice the works that he has done. Now, what are some of those works? We continue in verse 3. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. This God is so great, He is so powerful, that even those who would do Him harm, even those who would violate uh, his, his stature, those who would rebel against His sovereignty, they will eventually submit. They will bow the knee before this great God. Your enemies shall submit themselves to you. In fact, one day all the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. This is really a call for all of the earth to worship God for who he is. And then this musical notation, Selah. We've seen this in Psalms before. You've heard me explain uh, in the past that this is some sort of a musical expression. Uh, we don't know precisely how it was used in the Hebrew poetry, but this little word sila is some sort of a musical notation which indicates a, a need for a, a pause or a reflection. Remember when I was a kid, there was an old preacher that would come to our church from time to time and he would, he would translate or he would, he would speak of the word sila as, think of that, think of that. All right, so when you come to that word sila, you can just stop and say, well, just, just think about that. That's really what, what the musical note is, is indicating. So we come to the end of this section and, and just pause and reflect, who is God that he deserves our worship? Think of that. Now what we notice here in verses 2 through 4 really is a theme, a theme that all nations, you remember that the word nations and Gentiles is the same word? We've mentioned that before. So all the people of the earth, all the Gentiles, all the nations, all ethnicities, are to bow before him. They are called on to praise God. And so this really is a missionary psalm. It really emphasizes the importance of taking the, the good news of Jesus Christ to all the world. We've said before, and you've even heard me read quotes from, from a book, um, that, that, that missions exist because where worship does not. <laughs> 
right? The, the, we don't think of missions quite in this terminology very often, but what really is happening when we do missions, when we do evangelism, is we are calling people to be true worshipers of the true God. That's what the first part of the psalm is about. It is saying this is who Yahweh, Jehovah, is. This is what he has done. Consider that and worship him rightly. And if you this morning are a a true worshiper, and by that we mean you have submitted to God as your king through, through King Jesus, God in flesh, if you have submitted to him, you are, you are born anew in Christ, then our mission is now to convey that message to others, to call all the earth to worship him, because he is worthy of that worship, to tell the earth who he is, and to just like this psalm does, call the earth to sing the honor of His name, to give Him glorious praise, to call all the earth to worship and sing praises to Him. God's purpose for all nations is to praise Him, for their worship to be rightly ordered before the true God. So in Psalm 15, we see it explained this way. Now, as I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, we're giving context here, to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. All right, so Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, which is being presented throughout the book of Romans, is presented here in verse 9 that the Gentiles may glorify God for His mercy. That the, that the nation should worship Him that they should worship God rightly. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. And so then the the writer of the book of Romans, Paul, goes on now to, to quote several Old Testament passages and link this to the gospel. For this reason, I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, with Israel. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud Him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. So do you see the connection here to the gospel? Paul is saying in Romans that, that this work of Jesus Christ is what fulfills all of these Old Testament passages that call the nations of the earth to rightly worship God. And so it's not out of the context, it is very much in the context of Psalms, to when we see a passage like, like Psalm 66 and we see all of the peoples of the earth worshiping to immediately think of Jesus Christ. To be reminded that it is only through the good news of Jesus Christ that the Gentiles of the earth, that the nations of the earth, that all of us can be rightly ordered in worship before God. So when we come... In for worship on Sunday morning, we will often remind ourselves that we have no means by which to come before God. We have nothing of ourselves that, that merits standing before God. We, we really can't worship God except through Jesus Christ. And so really, Psalm 66, verses 1 through 3, verses 1 through 4, are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. People who were once strangers, aliens from God's economy, 
are now brought into a place of worship. How wonderful is this reminder that because of God's greatness, all people should praise Him. As we move to verses 5 through 7, it is important for us to think about this. God is objectively great. Do you understand what I mean by that? God is objectively great. So in other words, He is great completely apart from any experience that we have of Him. You're all still looking at me with a blank stare. Like, God's great whether we recognize it or not. That's what we're saying. It's an objective truth about who He is. And whether you and I say, oh, God did this, He must be great, whether we acknowledge that, or, or frankly, whether God does anything good for us or not, He is who He is. That's, that's to say He is objectively Great. He is objectively good. Okay, now I'm getting some more recognition like on the face. You understand what I mean. He's objectively great. Our ability to perceive or to not perceive his greatness is in no way diminished. Or his great, excuse me, his greatness is in no way diminished by our inability to perceive it. However, that having been said, the psalmist is not content to leave his greatness as some sort of a a theoretical idea that sits on the shelf. The psalmist actually ties that in, not just so it's some kind of abstract out there, so it's not something theoretically, it demonstrates it by appealing to what? What he has done. Appealing to his works by dwelling on his goodness. And so we see in verses 5 through 7 that because God is great, because of God's greatness, all people should consider his past works. So consider verse 5 with me. Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing towards the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. What's he referring back to? He's referring to the work on behalf of Israel, right? This is the Exodus. This is when they faced, uh, on the one hand, the Red Sea, and on the other hand, the armies of Pharaoh, who threatened to kill them all, and God opens the Red Sea. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. This is now a reference to the crossing of the Jordan River as they enter into the promised land. There we will rejoice in him. Verse 7, he rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Well, that's a comfort. The United Nations met a few weeks ago. You may look at the, the political scene, the international scene, and you think, boy, this is all a mess. This is all out of control. And from a human point of view, it might be a disaster. If you observe politics very long, both national and international politics, you gotta, kind of got to wag your head at some point and go, this is just nuts, right? I don't care which side you're on, it's nuts. Right? But here's a comforting word. Nothing escapes God's notice. When we saw in verse 1 that he is to be acknowledged as king, we recognize that, that God may be letting man run his course for a time, but the, escape, the, the control never escapes God. He's still, he's still the ruler. He rules by his power forever. His eyes are on the nations. And so, because of that, don't get a big head, rebellious rulers. Those who remember Psalm 2, right, that we talked, we talked about a few months ago, 
Right? Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? They set themselves against God's anointed. Yeah, don't get a big head, rulers of the world. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. And so those who would defy God, those who would shake their fists in the face of God, will only be allowed to do so for a season. They do not escape God's notice. And so as we consider verses 5 through 7, we're reminded that God is great and so that we we should too consider his past works. Do you, do you go through life observing the, the blessings that you have, the good things that you have, the, the rewards that you have, and does that remind you of, of who is behind it all? And certainly it's good for us to express thanks to one another, to, to compliment people for the good things that they have done, for the way that God has used them in their lives, but ultimately the honor goes to God. I read, um, I read some time back uh, about a, a lady who came to the pastor after, after his sermon, and he, she said, Pastor, I just want to thank you. That was a very encouraging sermon. And the pastor very humbly responded, oh, well, 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 don't thank me, thank God. To which she responded, well, I thought about that, but it wasn't quite that good. Right? <laughs> As we express thanksgiving to one another, we ought to be reminded that really it's good to do that, but the the praise belongs to God. That ultimately everything we have, all the blessings that we enjoy are because He has done for us. And so I would ask us this morning, the psalmist here is rehearsing the good works of God. Do you do that? Do I do that? Do we stop and count those blessings that the Lord has, has done for us? His mighty works on our behalf. Do we ever look back and say, boy, God has been good in this area. Do you take time to dwell on the works of the Lord? And do you just think of those as as neat little treats that God hands out? Or do you recognize that that reflects on who He is and praise Him for who He is? We see further in this passage in verses 8 through 12 that because God is great, God's people are blessed. Bless our God, we're told in verse 8, you people. That is, that is to acknowledge who He is, to, to give blessing to Him and make the voice of His praise be heard. Why? Verse 9, who keeps our souls among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. He keeps our souls among the living. Every heartbeat that we have, every breath that we take, every moment that we continue through life is a gift from God. But because it comes, we sometimes take it for granted. The psalmist says, you keep me here. I am living by your, by your mercy. And then this imagery of not allowing our foot to be moved. Remember in those days there was a lot of walking travel, right, along paths that were treacherous. And, and the slipping of the foot, right, could very well be fatal if you fall the wrong place. And so this uh, is very common parlance in, in Hebrew times uh, of the foot being fixed or the foot not being moved, of, of the protection, of the safety of staying on the right path. So that's just simply what he's saying is, God, you protect me. You, you keep me safe. And can we think how often we have narrowly escaped great tragedy? Great calamity, 
Uh, even someone here in our congregation this week had a very bad wreck, and we are grateful that God intervened. All right? And if you see the pictures, you'll be like, wow, praise the Lord. But God does that for us. Sometimes we recognize it. Sometimes we fail to recognize it. But the psalmist praises God. Thank you, God. You, you keep my foot from being moved. Now, we know that God does all things for his glory and for our good. It's easy to praise him when things are good, right? When he does good things for us. It's easy to say, well, this is for God's glory and for, for our good when we like the circumstances. But what about the painful things of life? How does the psalmist think about those situations? Well, notice verse 10. For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. What is this net? This is the, the metaphor of a difficult situation. This is the hunter's net. You've allowed us to fall into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You caused men to ride over our heads. This, this language gives the picture of a, a hostile army running rough, roughshod over another army. It's picturing actually Israel's defeated troops. Then he goes on in verse 12, We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. Brought us out to rich fulfillment, or another translation says it this way, You have brought us out to a place of abundance. So there were these harsh circumstances. There were these difficult things. There were these calamities that befell us, but, but God does all things for His glory and our good. What do you do in the end? You bring us to a place of abundance. You do all of these things to bring it out for our good and your glory. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Romans 8. Kind of the New Testament version of this, right? We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purposes. In other words, God accomplishes his good purpose in our lives, even through difficult circumstances. The very thing that you are enduring this morning that you think is bad is actually a blessing because it accomplishes God's glory and your good. Think about that for a moment. I mean, we're quick to say, God sent this blessing, or I'm blessed, or God blessed me when the circumstance is something that we want. How quick are we to say, God's blessing by sending me a trial? God's, this is God's blessing. We tend to not think about it that way. The psalmist makes clear that we must be encouraged. We must praise God, not just for the pleasant circumstances, but for the unpleasant ones as well. Now, it's interesting that the psalm is getting progressively more specific. It starts with everybody, all the nations of the earth. And then it moves to God's people in verse 8. Right? This is that whole section that talks about how he brings them, how he brought them to the Red Sea, through the Jordan River, 
and God's people are to praise him. And now it narrows even more. The remainder of the song deals with our individual response. If we are grateful for what God has done, what does that look like for the individual believer? We see in verses 13 through 15 that because God is great, each believer owes him worship. Notice with me verse 13. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals with the sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls and goats, Selah. Now, verses 13 through 15 may not seem like they apply to you, right? I mean, you read that, sacrificial system, Old Testament law. Yeah, okay, we'll just skip over that part because that doesn't really apply to us. But remember a passage that we read last week for our call to worship. Consider Hebrews 13. Remember, we're talking about that the, the writer of Hebrews is contrasting Jesus with the old covenant system. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Right? Jesus is, is the sacrifice. The Old Testament, they had to bring sacrifices. Now Jesus has fulfilled that role. And Jesus, theme of Hebrews, is better. Remember that? So that's who Jesus is, verse 14, or uh, verse 13. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but seek the one to come. Therefore, all right, so, so there's no, Jesus is the sacrifice, verse 15. Therefore, by him, by Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. So there are still sacrifices that are owed. It, we, we, still, we still are to sacrifice. Yes, maybe it's not bulls and, and, and goats and, and that kind of a sacrifice, but there is still a sacrifice that is called for. What is the sacrifice? Well, we see two things. First of all, continually offering the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So the writer of Hebrews, you can leave it up there, I'll get to verse 16 in a minute. The writer of Hebrews is contrasting the Old Testament sacrificial system, the sacrifice that is made uh, on our behalf in Jesus. Our sins have been paid in full, right? You understand all this by the perfect sacrifice of Christ, but that doesn't mean that we're not called on to make sacrifices. Verse 15, we are called to do what? To verbalize thanks to him. C.S. Lewis says it this way. It is not out of compliment that lovers tell, uh, keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. 
You understand what Lewis is saying? Like, it's incomplete until you express it. So well, I praise God in my heart. That's good. What does Hebrews say? The fruit of our lips, giving praise to his name. And so I would ask us, how often do we actually verbalize thanks? How often does it make its way from our heart to our lips? God is great. God has done so much good for us. Thank him. You say, well, we don't have many opportunities to do that. Don't we? Don't we at least, at least once a week, gather together for the express purpose of offering a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name? I mean, what are we doing when we're singing? I don't know, fill in time because Pastor V can't preach very long. No. No, we are here when we sing. When we, you all know better than that, right? <laughs> that's not the problem, right? We come together and we sing because that's exactly what we're told to do. To verbalize thanks, to verbalize praise, to verbalize worship. Do we do that? Or do we just think of our, you know, first 20, 30 minutes of the worship service as kind of, yeah, 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 let's get this done with. That is our opportunity to join our voices together and make our sacrifice. Now, if you want, next week, instead of a song time, we can all bring in goats. Like, I mean, this seems like easy when you read the Old Testament sacrificial system. Like God just wants us to tell him how great he is, to worship him, to praise him. I wonder if we might not have opportunities to do this even throughout the week. How often do we say, praise God. God, is, God has been so good to me in this way. Let me just tell you the wonderful blessings that God has bestowed upon me. Can, can I just take a minute to, to praise God with you? Do we not have ever opportunities to do this with, with fellow believers? Maybe even to shoot them a quick text. Say, hey, I just want to let you know, be thankful. This is what God's doing. When, when we hear the good things that are happening in one another's lives, are we quick to give him praise, to glorify him, to worship him in our hearts? And so that's the first way that Hebrews tells us that we are to be worshiping, to offering sacrifices. But the second means of New Testament worship is by what in verse 16? But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. The second means by which we worship God is by offering worship with our lives, being, being good and being generous. Now, for the New Testament believer, all of life is worship. What we do here from, um, from Sunday morning, from 1030 to whenever we get done, that's a, a kind of a distilled, it is a focused, it's a special kind of worship. But in a, in a very real sense, all of our life is to be an effort of worship. I, I was thinking about the connection that, to the book that the men are reading right now. Right, men are, The men are reading a book um, that focuses on a biblical theology philosophy of our daily work. Like, like what, are we, what are we doing when we go to work you know, from 8 to 5, or 
however long your job keeps you. Right? What is the theology of that? How should we be thinking about that? And one of the things I was reminded of as I was, I was reading this book is the connection of our daily work to the fact that, that all of life is worship. And so even as we perform what may seem like a mundane task, do you think of your daily work as worship? As you conduct your business, whatever that might be, do you do the right thing from your cl- for your clients, your customers? Uh, treat your employees with respect. Honor your employer. Uh, work diligently. Respect your coworkers. Act ethically. Do you do all of those things not just because you know that's what good people do, but actually as active worship before God? We ought to dwell regularly on the good works of God, and because He is great, we owe Him worship. Lastly, we see in verses 16 through 20 that because God is great, each believer seeks forgiveness. So in in verses 16 through 20, we see God hearing the cry of the repentant. Notice verse 16, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will declare what He has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. So the psalmist is basically giving a testimony here. This actually connects back to what we talked about in the first part of the psalm. God is calling all people to worship him. And our first act in approaching God is not showing him how worthy we are of his attention. It's rather humbling ourselves before him, submitting to him. You see, there's a fundamental problem when it comes to approaching God. What is that problem? It's the problem of sin. It separates us from Him. So what must we do to get close to God? Well, we must first submit to Him by repudiating our wickedness. This is what the psalmist says in verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Worded just a little bit differently, we can understand it this way. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, if I had harbored my sin, the Lord would not have listened. You might hear someone say, well, God will just accept you as you are, mistakes and all. Is that true? Well, that's one of those statements that might be true in some sense, but can also be very misleading. The fact is, God saves us from our sin when we come to Him and in repentance that is, that is turning away from who we are, submitting to what He says about us. There is no salvation outside of repentance. Or, put differently, God will not save a rebel. And so, if we are to be made right with God in Jesus Christ... We must come to him in repentance. This is how a person is born anew. This is how they are made right with God through Jesus Christ. Or we kind of colloquially say that they get saved. Right? They come to Jesus Christ. They acknowledge that he's God's right. I'm wrong. And Jesus is my only hope. They abandon their way and they depend on Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin and eternal life. 
And I wonder this morning, have you ever done that? Has there ever been a time when you have recognized your own inadequacy, your own insufficiency, your own inability to save yourself and depended on Jesus Christ alone for salvation? My friend, if there's never been a time that you've done that, any of us who are members of North Hills would be happy to take a Bible, sit down with you, answer any questions that you might have about how you can know forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is the only sacrifice that, that is adequate for our sin. Perhaps you were here this morning and you say, there has been a time that I've done that. I've turned from sin and depended on Jesus Christ. I've been saved. I've been born again. You know, my Christian friend, this is the way we continue to live the Christian life, in repentance. If you're saved this morning, you were saved through repentance. But we sometimes lapse back into that rebellion that our flesh pulls us to, right? That, that it inclines us towards. So how do we live the Christian life? Well, we live the Christian life by not regarding iniquity in our heart, not harboring our sin, but rather confessing it. When we consider God's works, it should draw us to repentance. This is what Romans 2 says. Do not know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. This morning we can praise God for what he has done. Because of his greatness, we, we all of us should praise him. We should give him praise. We should do that as we reflect on the past works that he has done in our lives and the lives of others. We owe him our worship. And we ought to be quick to seek forgiveness because God hears the cry of the repentant. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, the reminders of it, the way in which you have worked marvelously on our behalf, and help us, Lord, to notice those things and to give thanks for them. I'm going to give you a moment to 